know if I say something, I mean it. These things happen. Yeah. If I ever said I'm never scared. try this again shall we thank you for joining us for another edition of dropping dimes it's Brittany johnson alongside me is sasha bloom sasha what's going on how are you how is everyone i am great and our guest today lucky number six kyle goon sports writer for the salt lake tribune lucky number six that's right how y'all doing Uh, great to be on your podcast great to be number six thank you for blessing us with your presence blazing trails here on the you're, airwaves. you're a big deal, so thanks for coming. <laughs> thanks, Brittany. You overstayed my case, but thank you very much. You are the <laughs> man, Kyle Gunn. I love reading your uh, journal. I think you're spectacular in a world of newspapers that don't have great penmanship these days. It was a really great idea to slip Sasha 10 bucks before, <laughs> before he came on the podcast. You know, every time I look at you now, I just want to call you Goon. Can I just call you Goon? It sounds... You know, that's, that would make you one of a very big club. So. Oh, dang it. I thought that was original. <laughs> I thought it would be the first person. So how come there's no hashtag Goon on Twitter? Yeah. And can we well, start this? That's what we're going to do when we uh, drop this podcast. Sweet. <laughs> Dropping dimes. Drop. Dropping goons. Dropping goons. Uh, Kyle, what's been going on at the University of Utah? A lot, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, not all that much. This week is pretty much a a, a sort of a dead week for competition. uh, With uh, The past couple weekends have been pretty busy. Um, Baseball was finishing up at home. Softball hosted NCAA Regional for the first time, and they won that, but just dropped out in Super Regionals. So actually this week has been kind of – Pretty slow. Um, it really, all they have left in the school year is um, is uh, is track and field for nationals, and only one person qualified. So, it's actually a time of year where I'm kind of kicking back, and I'll go I'll go on vacation next week, and and uh, but you know you just kind of try to monitor what's going on for the next year um, for Utah, and and they're getting some budget stuff done, and getting some some sort of off season work, so to speak, done. So. Um, that's kind of what's going on now. I mean, I, I still have some meetings and stuff, and, but it's mostly trying to wrap up. So, It's been an incredible run at the University of Utah this whole season for every team. I think volleyball is, or women's basketball is still a work in progress. I think men's basketball is still a work in progress. But for what the softball team's done since the stadium was built and the Pac-12 network has come is unbelievable. Four years ago, there were 50 people in the crowd. Now it's almost a sellout. I mean, there's almost 1,300 people there. Yeah, um, and that was huge for them to be hosting a regional this year. Um, it's something that, um, you know, I mean, you look around the country and the places that do that are in the SEC or in Southern California, and Utah softball has not been a brand whatsoever. Um, so it, it's really telling for Amy Hogue, who who played at Utah, um, and she actually played on the last team that went to the College World Series. They came up one game short of the College World Series this year, but they were a top 25 team all year. Um, they hosted a regional. Uh, they had a two-time Pac-12 player of the year. Uh, a U.S. Made, Olympian. U.S. Olympian. Yeah. Anna Flippin. I mean, how big of a deal is that just for – because 
BYU's big in baseball, and even Utah State and UVU, there's, there is a culture of softball in Utah. But to have one of the best 20 players in the world playing in Utah, I think that's really cool. Yeah, it's um, yeah, she's going to be doing U.S. national team this summer again, um, and that it's pretty remarkable. Um, and and I mean, you just look at her stats; uh, she's bet, you know batting over four hundred um, over over half the time she gets on base. Yeah, that's that's kind of an incredible stat. Um, and this year, teams couldn't pitch around her as much as last year because the overall team was better. Um, but Hannah's going to be one of those athletes that. You know, she's going to get inducted in the Crimson Club Hall of Fame in a couple of years. And we're going to be like, wow, she was dominant. <laughs> and she was dominant in a sport. When I talked to Chris Hill, um, you know, when they went to the Pac-12, they said they, they saw it as a liability. They saw softball as a sport where, like, man, we're going to get exposed. We're going to have a lot of trouble adapting to Pac-12. And Amy Hogue has really made the most of uh, what she had at the time to – to kind of vault Utah softball into one of the best programs in the country, which is unbelievable. Well, how have you seen this team develop over the years from uh, when you first start covering sports at Utah uh, to now? It's really funny. Um, I, I remember those those women as, as freshmen, um, and some of the people were talking about Hannah, Hannah Flippin and Anissa Ortez and um, uh, Bridget Castro, um, it's it's kind of amazing. They were all playing infield together, and they were they are all still pretty short. <laughs> but, um, you know, they just seem smaller <laughs> in my memory, and uh, and it's just kind of interesting. I mean, that first year they didn't go to NCAA's at all, and then their sophomore years they went to NCAA's, which was a huge step in and of itself. Then they won a regional at Lexington last year and went to Super Regionals, didn't win a game at Super Regionals last year. And really, the next step for them is to try and win a Super Regional and go to the College World Series. It's going to be really tough now because they lose so many great seniors, including, you know, most of their out, most of their infield, um, and some really good hitters. Uh, but, you know, the foundation's there. And if you look at some of the freshmen who came in the program this year, um, there's some really outstanding players who had the opportunity, maybe in a couple years, to to be sort of Pac-12 Player of the Year caliber players. I mean, if you look at Melissa Barrera, um, who who batted over three three fifty this year, I mean that's the kind of recruit that you know a couple of years ago. How was Utah going to get that? Um, it's it's pretty amazing to see what Amy Hogue has done, and it's hard to talk enough about it. I know there are, there's a group of fans maybe at Utah that really aren't that interested, but to me it's it's kind of incredible to see that rise over the last four years. What they've done, especially with the senior class. Talk about the fan support. Um, do you see a lot of students out there, a lot of fans coming to support uh, these softball games? Um, I think it's mostly, and Sasha, feel free to tune in because he, he does a lot of the Pac-12 network games, but I, I feel like it's a lot of alums, a lot of family. Um, and and I think one thing that Amy's done really well um, is kind of create uh, that community of, alumni and kind of get an investment from people who were in the program to be proud of the program to contribute to it um you know we're not talking about this softball stadium on campus without some of that support and i think that's really what stood out and and utah has kind of been become um you know a focal point for 
softball in the state and been a been a point of pride and you see at that regional you see a lot of um you know high school coaches coming up and college coaches coming up and and people who have been through the program um and and i think that's what she's done really well i don't know how much the student support is there um and you know it, it would be i think it would be nice for them to see some because it's so close to everything on campus but i think amy's done a really good job as a former player of of getting the support from the past one of the great things that amy does too is she always brings young softball teams to the game so every game you are there there's at least two or three full teams of young 10 11 12 year old girls and they have a blast and they get to go on the field and they get to do openings with the players and and i i see it with all the softball teams that even come to play utah They'll walk up to all the girls and say, hey, how are you doing? You know, they'll go over batting stuff. There's just no ego with these softball players from around the country. It's a, it's a beautiful game that they have. And we were there on our last uh, weekend with Pac-12, and they opened up kind of like a Hall of Fame room and hangout room where the alumni can come and watch games when the girls are on the road, and they can, you know, have parties and stuff. And when they cut that ribbon – just watching these older women that are, you know in their 40s and 50s crying and being happy and the amount of money and sacrifice that they have given that program it's a beautiful thing and if you want to look how big softball is look at what ESPN does for the tournaments and the numbers are huge like in the millions and i think softball is really going to take off in utah as long as they're televised and you know who knows where that's going to be in a couple years but we can hope. I, w- I would say one thing, I think one challenge that Utah softball is going to face, aside from the obvious of how do we re- replace this talent, is you look at their roster. And I think, you know, a, p- a couple sports at, at the University of Utah are going this way. Um, but there's literally one Utah-born kid on the roster. Yeah. Um, and she's a freshman from, I think, Fremont. And... One of the challenges I think that Utah could have is that it, it could come become sort of like a boarding school for California kids. Um, and I think when you look at the, the support for a sport like softball, um, especially in-state, kind of needs to be built on a little bit of hope and aspiration, needs to be built on a little bit of Utah kids being like, hey, I could play for this coach one day or play for this program one day. And I think if, you know, Utah struggles to recruit in the state, and I'm not sure if it's as much a struggle as much as the talent they identify out of state is better, but it's going to be tough, I think, to sustain sort of the community support for for Amy and the Utes as long as it's going to be maybe we have one player on our roster from the state of Utah uh, on a given year. I think that's tough from a continuity standpoint to get the investment um, uh, a, a sport like softball needs. But I, I think the Pac-12 logo will change that because the last decade and a half, BYU has been taking all the great Utah soccer and softball athletes, and baseball for that matter. And I think with their decline in national popularity over the next couple of years, I think we might see that switch. But, you know, the Utah softball team has a lot, had a long way to go. So what do you do if you're the Utah softball team? Do you say, hey, I'm going to save two spots each season for uh, 
people in Utah to come play with us? Or how do you do that? Yeah, I think it's really tough because I don't know if it's as much. And what Sasha was referencing was BYU might be beating Utah for some of these people. But I'm not sure if that's as much the case as Utah feels and evaluates that the California talent is better, mm. um, which is an issue. I mean, and, and it may be true, um, but but then, you know, how, how are you going to tell those 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds who you have your games, we, we, you might not be good enough, um, which I think is an issue in the community, um, and it could be seen as an issue if Utah kind of continues to be where it's at. Um, you know, and they'll have camps and stuff, and they'll have opportunities for those girls to 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 come up and and play with the team. But if the the coaching at the club and high school level isn't good enough to to develop Pac-12 talent, can you kind of continually convince people to invest in a program where everyone that's on the team is from California? And maybe the answer is yes. I mean, maybe. Maybe I'm I'm wrong on this, but I, I I don't know. I think maybe it's even just having one Utah spot, and the baseball team kind of has to work with this a little bit because you know the talent in state isn't as good as what you might see in California, just because those kids play year round. Yeah, they don't have winter to deal with. Exactly, but they de- I mean Utah definitely has in state kids, and um you know we can talk about this in a second, but I think. Maybe their their highest draft prospect this year might be Riley Otteson, who's a kid from American Fork. And I think Utah, if there's a kid who has pactual potential, they gotta maybe make an ec- a little bit of extra effort, and that will help. Just say to coaches and in-state alums, there's a chance for Utah kids to make it. I'm not sure that message exists right now in the program. And there's other obstacles too. Oregon just built a 21 million dollar softball stadium. And playing at UCLA softball or Arizona, I mean, Arizona is one of the best schools for softball in the world. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going to have those Utah stellar players, there's a good chance they'll get picked up too. Mm. So do do our uh, coaches here in Utah work with those, um, work with, uh, what word am I trying to say, the camp coaches and uh, your, um, I'm at a loss right now, your uh, AAU teams, like the coaches from them, and do they work with it do do they have to do a better job working with them to say hey we want these kids to be up to the certain level if they're not you know they can't play here what do you do well the issue as it's been described to me is um you get you get you talk to some of the players who are at utah now and you realize that the fr- some of the freshmen coming in like Alyssa barrera and kelly martinez who are on the same club team they played every weekend basically of their lives. Like, I mean, since they were very young um, and they go every weekend is tournaments. Every weekend is, you know, club play or high school play and they just do it. And I'm not sure the club level softball in Utah is organized to the point um, where that's all kind of taken care of where you can go to Vegas every weekend and, and play in a tournament. And then the other issue is in Utah, um, another person has described this to me, there's sort of this aversion to getting the best of the best on one team. And you kind of see that play out in high, in the high school level where, you know, people want to restrict transfer rules and make sure that, you know, kids only, only go to school 
where they grow up, where they were born. And there's sort of this emphasis of we don't want super teams. We want even play. But sometimes that's, you know, when you're talking about developing elite players for sports like baseball or softball or even basketball. I mean, women's basketball is is not really developing great in a basketball crazy state, right? Mm -hmm. Because the infrastructure doesn't exist to have super teams and that's partly geography because Utah's so far apart, but partly there's sort of a cultural resistance to we don't want all the strongest kids to play together. We want the kids to grow up in their communities, which is great, um, but to, to reach that elite level, the kids in California are playing every weekend, playing one sport, over-specializing, and, and that's their life. And spending a lot of parent money, too, on coaching. Absolutely. So that's that's part of it, and that's a couple sports in Utah. I mean, I would argue softball's like that, baseball's like that. Um, gymnastics. Gymnast- I mean, I mean gymnastics is a little yeah. more specialized, but women's basketball in Utah, because there are men's ba- basketball AAU clubs where they have they compete pretty well, but in women's AAU, I don't know if that exists. And how many, I mean, outside from, like, Brittany Martin and Lexi Eaton that one year, like how many women's basketball players in Utah are are rising to an elite level? It's 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 pretty tough uh, when you look at some of those sports. And then I know a lot of argument is from parents. I don't want my kid to play year round. Uh, they need a break. They're kids. Mm-hmm. They need to live. But then you have the other parents who are like, mm, bump that. My kid, <laughs> you know, we got things to do. My kid is playing every week because we have these this goal that we're trying to get to, and you can't get to it if you're not doing X, Y, Z every week. And it should be said there's merits to both things. I mean, because who wants parents like LeVar Ball? I I mean, who wants to to be (laughs) like, yeah, I'm that parent. But on one hand, like, he has an elite basketball player who's probably going to be a top three draft pick. On the other hand, it's like, I mean, there is something to be said about developing – so that whole person. And Utah is really a state for that. I mean, in terms of the outdoors and in terms of so many of the activities you can do as a kid. Um, but you may do that but not be a Division One softball player. And, th- and that's just the reality of it. And I think Amy Hogue, uh, the softball coach, even sees that in her own family because she has some young kids and – they're sort of getting to the age where it's like, all right, like, are you going to specialize in a sport or are you going to be a kid? Yeah. You know, and, and that's that's a difficult parenting decision. And a lot of times when you look at these high level athletes, like they have to make a decision to be a high level athlete when they're like 15. Yeah. I mean, in basketball, in my opinion, one of the underrated stories of men's basketball are those prep academies that run run talent like from the time they're 15 like you know finley prep in vegas or brewster academy in in new jersey or oak hill in virginia and they're taking kids when they're 15 years old basically it's basketball boarding camp you do school online or somewhere local and then you just play basketball all day so it's sort of the same effect like when a kid arrives at a school they've been playing basketball competitively and traveling and dorming with their teammates for three or four years already I'm they're, seeing them when they're six. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's it's like they, you are making those decisions younger and younger and younger. 
And it's almost crazy. I mean, when you think about the investment and some of the people that, you know, don't don't really work out um, for at a pro level. I mean, what what was that investment worth? I went through that. I have real personal experience with this. I remember playing in the Ojai tennis tournament, uh, I think my junior and eh, my senior year. And it was 110 degrees outside. It was 135 on the court. And I remember I'm dribbling the ball, getting ready to serve. And, I, you know, I was just really slowed down uh, mentally. And I was really in tune with what was going on with my surrounding. And I had 15 logos on me. And I couldn't smoke weed. And I couldn't go dating. And I remember being <laughs> just like... Just for this podcast purpose, none of us can smoke weed. Yeah, none yeah, of us can. None of and us. no one should. But I remember as that 16, 17-year-old boy being, I'm done. I What am I doing? This is ridiculous. You know, having to get up at 4 in the morning and run and then lift weights, then train twice a day, and then having to do homework. And it's a tremendous sacrifice that these student-athletes do. And they all, most of them come out with lifelong injury, too. Yeah. On some joint. Yeah. I, well, I remember, you know, when I was covering high school, uh, you know, some of my early interactions with Gordon Monson, because thing about Gordon is he doesn't really go in the office much. No. He, I mean, he, nice he does his radio show, show every day. <laughs> but, um, you know, when it comes to the Trib office, he always – the joke is he always calls because he needs to uh, somebody to tell him what the elevator code is. <laughs> so – but I ran into Gordon, um, you know, when I was covering prep tennis, which is the the bottom rung mm. of, of, this, of this market. And Gordon had four daughters. And all of them played tennis, and all of them got a, a scholarship yeah. to college, which is great. But then he's like, "Well, when you factor in, you know, ten years of tennis lessons, did we really make it? Yeah. <laughs> Was there yeah. a, a benefit? I mean, you know, they get they get a game. On one hand, they get a game, then a, a hobby and a passion that they can, you know, do their entire lives if they want to. You can play tennis till you're eighty, but." On the other hand, it's like the investment's so deep and so early, and you have to, you know, push for so many years. It's sort of at the end of it. It's like, is this what all this was for? I mean, especially for those kids who end up in sports where, you know, maybe they're they're they weren't the player at that level that they were when they were fifteen. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of. Uh, this kid, Seventh Woods. Do you guys know who that is? He's no idea. He's a point guard at North Carolina, and I mean, obviously, if you're at North Carolina, you've done well. But four years ago, like he was an internet sensation because in high school he was just like crossing up other fifteen year olds and like killing everybody, and now he's at North Carolina, but he's not even nearly this. Like he's coming off the bench, and he's not nearly the star that he was when he was, you know, six foot one or six foot two and everyone else was much shorter and much, much less physically mature and the world kind of caught up with him. Mm. So it's like, if you're that the parent of that kid, at what point was, was that investment and kind of taken away their childhood? And I'm not saying I know that much about seventh woods, but I just know that somebody who was a star as, as like a, a seventh grader, cause everyone is like earlier and earlier and earlier. And now he's sort of like, he, I mean, maybe he'll be a star at North Carolina, but I don't really see him. If he was going to be an NBA star, like, we'd already know about it, right? Like, we'd already know, okay, this kid's legit. He's he's going to the next level. He probably would have declared by now. I remember being 10 years old 
And every day I played with the Bryan Twins, who have the most Grand Slam championships in the world for men's doubles tennis. And I remember being like, I'll never be as good as these guys. Mm. And then nine years later, I remember being in this big tournament, and I was facing Andy Roddick. Mm. And, you know, I could hit a 109-mile-an-hour serve. That's as far as and high as I could go. But he was 6'4". He could hit a 120-mile-an-hour serve. Mm. There was nothing I could do, and I was really good. Mm-hmm. And I just remember after that game, I lost 6 4, 6 0. I mostly, I, I, I just, like, after warm ups, I was like, dude, this is why am I even here? Mm-hmm. I yeah. think the problem is, too, a lot of times, is it's the parents that are more invested mm-hmm. than the kids. And you see them, I call them what, the, like, the dance moms. Well, I dance, <laughs> but, you know, like, the, that you always see on TV. Like, they're, they're I just like your head bobbing. Sorry. Of <laughs> people who can't see you know? <laughs> And it's kind of doing, like, a little, mm. <laughs> What what was it doing? Mm, I imagine that. You didn't actually vocalize that. (laughs) But I think it's the parents. They're so invested. And then I think, too, um, they're invested because they're like, okay, I don't have the money to pay for you to go to college. This is your your meal ticket. So let's do it. Let's go. Get out there. You got to get that scholarship, you know? And, and, I mean, half the time – and. I've always believed this since my prep days. Like, wouldn't the kid just be as well served if you spent that money on a decent tutor? Yeah. No, I don't want a tutor. <laughs> I'd rather just go outside and play sports. <laughs> yeah, but no, but... It's, it's the same thing. Why don't you put that effort into a tutor? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. And I I can see both sides, And but it, I, I probably got more email as a prep reporter than I did at any other beat I've done. And I, and now I've written – at all levels of sport and and it's because of exactly what you said Brittany is like the parents are so invested and they read every word and everything feels so life and death it's like well you wrote about my kid doing a negative thing on the field like this is gonna this is gonna be a thing that keeps them from getting a scholarship and that I mean that one that reflects a lack of understanding of how scholarships are earned but it, <laughs> it also is like you get that sense of like Everything is so do or die, and we're talking about sixteen-year-olds, seventeen-year-olds, and it's—I mean, it's kind of nuts when you look at how young everybody has to make those decisions. And it's a—it's a good thing and a and a bad thing for sure. I mean, there's there's two sides to it. I mean, and I I always wonder what happens to some of these these athletes in a sport like softball where there's not that many. I mean, there's a pro league, but is there like yeah, I mean really. it's sort of like Han- Hannah got drafted by this pro league and she's going to do US national team instead right because the national team's more important but it's it's just like what do you kind of do after that I mean I know you've done school and and hopefully you have your degree but I mean that when you're dedicating 4 hours of your life 5 hours of your life every day I bet you it's more like 7 for to be a high prob- end division 1 athlete right. yeah you're probably right and it's just it, it, there's sort of a void, I'd imagine. What were you? What were you doing at fifteen? Were you working on your craft because you knew you were going to be a writer for the Tribune? <laughs> I did do school newspaper. Yeah, I did that. Um, yeah, I did Boy Scouts. I was terrible at sports, so I wasn't. <laughs> then why? Wasn't why did you want to write about sports? Um. Well, it's fun. You get to go outside get to get out of the office you get to interact with people who 
um, just can do things that other people can't. And and I think part of it is just um, I find this really kind of poetic sense of, of the human experience um, when it comes to sports of, you know, what, what we can and can't do with our bodies and, and how we make sense of that. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, to me, it's almost more interesting to see someone on the decline of their career, like in the Jazz playoffs. How amazing was it to see Joe Johnson yeah, both do what he did and just kind of, I mean, his game has evolved to the point where he's so physically mature. Like, if you look at his highlights when he's first coming to the league as a Celtic, I mean, he's so skinny. He's so, I mean, he's basically a guard. And now he's had to evolve, like, basically four positions over to be a power forward who can just bulldoze <laughs> over the Clippers' defense and, and make a tough game-winning shot. I mean, to me, sort of, it's really fascinating how people come to terms with what they can and can't do. And we all know Joe Johnson can't run the floor like a deer anymore. Like, that's his, his days are behind him for that. He's a Hall of Famer. But he can bulk up and get the ball on his own in a part of the court and just will his way to the basket if he needs to, which is amazing to see for somebody who's 35, 36, however old he is. And, I mean, that to me, that journey is kind of incredible to witness. And it's really fun sort of being at the, the front lines of something like that. Now, the debate. Can you be, a, not you in particular, but can you be a sports analyst and not have played any sports? <laughs> I Honestly, I feel like the industry has moved so far to the other way of, like, we can only get X jocks that it's to its de- detriment. Mm. That's my opinion. Um, and, I mean, I'm a little biased because I wasn't good at sports. I mean, I played some baseball. I played some soccer. I was bad at all of that. <laughs> um, but I think the sports world needs a Roxy Bernstein. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he's so good. And absolutely. Matt Money Smith is so good. Like, and you can, and they're so good that they can take a guy that just came off the field or off the court and make him shine. And how many times are we talking about like, well, Charles Barkley said some dumb thing. Like, and you know, I mean, he's been doing it for a long time. Like, I'm not trying to say he should be out of a job, but like, how many times are these guys like, just uh, the whole the whole Isaiah Thomas thing with Charles Barkley that was being bad. like, well, I think he shouldn't be crying in front of his teammates because his sister like. It's just like that dumb. Was... That's, I mean, to sim- oversimplify it, that's dumb jock talk. Like, that's not elevating the discussion whatsoever. And I think if you bring in ex athletes, they, they, they play a very specific role in, okay, like, I understand the game better than somebody who didn't play. I can explain it tactically, or I understand the chemistry of a team because I was on so many teams and I was in so many locker rooms and or I know these particular people and I think we've we've elevated the, their roles too much. I think we have too many sort of ex jocks sort of yucking it up to tell us things like um oh like this guy really needs to hit a shot, which I mean any you know they I know they, what you're they, they make 
uh, uh, the vast majority of them, with limited exceptions, make observations that anyone with eyeballs can make. And and in that sense, we're getting lost on what do a- ex athletes bring to the table. Um, and and I feel bad for them. Like yeah. I was watching Carlos Boozer on Speak for Yourself with uh, Colin Coward. I was like, you got to be kidding me. Like, you not only killed a franchise and a playoff team, but now you're going to come in and try to pretend like you're an analyst. Like, And it's just because they want to be around the sport that they've played their whole life. And Well, there's an industry now into shaping those guys up into guys who can talk on TV. Yeah. And it's, and it's not necessarily guys who can talk – intelligently on tv but guys who can sort of sound intelligent like you can kind of fake it and and it's just i mean i don't know i i definitely hear nba analysis that i like or nfl analysis that i like and i'm like okay this is there's a place for this but i mean there's others they're just sort of cliche like you know i mean just things that anyone with two eyeballs can see and like that's not what you want when it comes to broadcasting i think as you were alluding to, Roxy Bernstein is a great example of somebody who who has skills that maybe an ex-athlete doesn't have, and you can kind of smooth things out and kind of um, narrate the game in a way that translates to viewers. And, and I mean, it's just a different skill set. And I'm not saying there should be no ex-athletes, but th- there's a balance to this. And there's I, I definitely think we've gone way too far when you look at a show like any – ESPN panel show. Or like TNT. TNT. But where would that show be without Ernie? Yeah. And that's the thing. That's People are like, Ernie, does he really have the place to sit up there and run that show? Because, oh, you know, but I love that guy. He's seen how many games of NBA basketball? Yeah. yeah. I mean, Scott Van Pelt. I mean, I mean, are we saying these guys can't comment intelligently on the sport? No. But do, do, do they have... Different skill sets for max athletes, sure. And should they be paired with ex athletes? Well, yeah, that's kind of the classic thing. Yeah. But it's I think we've gone so far to well, you need it's you need credibility um, instantly to to be able to commentate on a sport. And because a great example, Emmett Smith, because Emmett Smith was so great at football, like we're going to put him on TV and hopes it works out. And well, it didn't work out. It was terrible. You know what I mean? He just the man couldn't talk on TV, uh, and and I mean it's just a different skill set. And sometimes I think we lean too heavily on oh this person has credibility because he had credibility on a football field. It's a different world. One of the neat things I saw working with Fox Sport and Fox Television is they have their whole announcer teams, and they've got three or four, five different ones, but. During the games, they also had, like, A.J. Hawk was there with another football player on this one game, and we, we set up their own broadcast booth, and they had their own red hat, and they had their own producer, and they called the game. But no one heard it. It just got recorded to the truck, and every game they're doing that around the country, they're having these young men who played football in this instance learning how to become a broadcaster. Right. And so I, I thought that training was, I, I was like, wow, that's really cool. But... um ESPN doesn't do that. And it's the same concept of coaching. Mm-hmm. I mean, the same same concept. I mean, how how far did Bill Belichick get in his football career? Not very as a player, mm-hmm. but it's a different skill set. It's it, because he can scheme, because he can identify things, because he can change on the fly, because 
he's so adaptable and and his offenses and defense are a little different every year. That's what makes him a good coach, not because he had instant credibility from being a, a great player. That that I mean, and I think that also you can make a similar analogy to TV and being an analyst and even being a columnist. I mean, are there hack analysts and journalists who didn't play the game? Sure. And maybe I'm a part of that. But, uh, you know, I just see my skill set as so different in terms of, I mean, you know, I always, one guy who's an ex-player who I always have respected and sorry he lost his job is Sean O'Connell. I think he he was great. Um, and, and because when I stood next to him on the sideline, he would just watch one play and be like, oh, so-and-so's messing up. So-and-so isn't doing his job. And that's his job. That's his skill set. And my skill set is more, you know, bringing out not necessarily always what happens in between the lines, but outside and your life and your personality and the people who help shape you. You bring their humanity out. Exactly. And I see that as my skill set. And I never tried to be better than Sean O'Connell at what he did and diagnosing, okay, this is why this didn't work or this is who's not playing well. I mean, I'm not trying to be better than him at that, but I am trying to be the best I am at what my skill set is. And I think now more than ever, the world wants that. We want the stories. We want Mm -hmm. the, what is this person like off the field? Uh, What's their background? I don't want to just know. I can look up and see that somebody won the game 23 to whatever, blah, 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 blah. But what happened during the game? What happened in the locker room? I want to know that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As, I mean, our coverage of sports has become so comprehensive that, I mean, the ultimate key is access. The ultimate key is how. what can you show people that they can't know from watching a game on TV? And I think I sort of talked about that last time I was on the other show with you guys. Um, but, it, I mean, it's just – it's so much the insight of, like, what can, what can Joe Blow not see? And that applies to, you know, game calling, um, you know, and – I think, you know, some people go way overboard, but I mean, you know, it's sort of that those anecdotes that people tell, um, you know, while the game is going on, if it's hitting a bit of a lull, it's like, oh, here's a personal story about so-and-so. And for, you know, my side of the business, that's a little bit like, can we get some time with, um, uh, to bar the other example, Joe Johnson off the floor. Aaron Falk did a great story about Joe doing yoga. And it was almost prophetic. <laughs> it was like a fountain of youth at the in the playoffs. So I mean, you know, it's it's just that's the kind of stuff that really um, stands out in the business. It's like, what can I tell? So what can I tell Joe Blow, sports fan, uh, that he he can't know by just watching the TV? Um, and I think that applies to all areas of our business. How we should be thinking and. Not everyone thinks that way. Some people think it's their job to be like strictly um, this is how many points were scored and this is how many rebounds were gotten and, you know, this is – but context is everything. I mean, finding out what's the story behind the story, what made this happen, that's what's going to drive our business from here on out. Covering basketball, football, baseball, softball, tennis in the past what's been the hardest story that you've had to cover 
In terms of like an event or in terms of in terms of just just getting access to someone and getting like a really good story, something that you worked on for a while, you were like, and just when you were done with it, it was like, finally, yes, this is one of the best stories I've done, <laughs> <laughs> and it all came together. I don't know. That's 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 tough to say. Um, there's been a couple. I would say one of the more complicated ones I've done was about um, Cottonwood High School when they were going through some stuff with a booster mm-hmm. named Scott Kate. Um, and sort of similar to what I was talking about earlier, I mean, people are so anti, like, all the talent in one place, all the super teams. And this guy sort of was making it so basically everyone who lived in Glendale wanted to come down to Cottonwood and play for Cottonwood. Um, and they, they had some really great players. Um, and basically he was forced out. And I tried to do a story. We did do a story on, you know, what that time was like for Cottonwood, um, how much control he had. And I would say that was just difficult because so, there were so many different opinions. And as we were talking about earlier, I mean, so many, when it comes to high school sports, so many have so many people have these pent up passions and strong feelings because it's their kid, it's their baby, it's their, you know, they're really invested in their kid, and people were kind of one way or the other, like he's an angel or he's a devil, and and that was kind of tough to balance and try to figure out, and that's probably one of the most complicated stories I've done, and maybe the story I've talked to the most people to do. Tell me the experience of watching the University of Utah baseball player Sean Kersey Jr. and watching him get injured this past weekend because you have a real relationship with that guy. Oh, I I mean, I know him. Um, And it's tough uh, because he's so talented. It's tough because, I mean, his his talent is running, right? His talent is speed. Um, That's his gift. And... Um, so for the people who were yeah, caught up, what happened was, um, he, he was going for what, what, what turned out to be a home run and running full speed and hit a wall and either stepped on it or hit it so awkwardly that his hip was immediately dislocated and he fractured a bone in his hip, um, which is re- really startling to watch. I mean, they played it a couple of times in the Pac-12 network, which I was a little surprised by. Me too. Um, I was mad about because, that. I mean... He felt he falls down, but his left leg is like straight up in the air. I mean, it looked so unnatural, um, and that was pretty tough to watch. And it's even tougher to watch when you know that that person's gift is just being able to run faster than almost anyone he's ever going to meet. Um, he was on the ground for forty minutes, and he's on the ground forever. I remember about eight minutes in, I was sitting next to my colleague, and I go, "Is he still on the ground?" And then about 10 minutes later, I go, is he paralyzed? And about another 10 minutes later, I go, is he dead? What's going on here? And it was one of the most uncomfortable. And I've seen a lot of injuries in my life, and I've never seen anything like that. And it broke my heart because he, I don't know if he had major league talent, but he had AAA talent. You know? Yeah, and he still might. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, with, with hips, uh, it's tricky. But, you know, depending on his rehab and how long that takes, I think they still hope that he can do that. You really think he could play a senior year? Oh, he's got two more years. Yeah, I don't assume he'll play next year. 
or he'll get we'll a medical see. red shirt. Yeah. Yeah, I have no idea. Hmm. I I don't know the the length of time on. So how do you how do you cover an injury like that? Like, well, I mean, you just try to get as much information as you can. And I would say the person who really worked on that for us was Scott Summerdorf, who took that your picture. photographer. Yeah. That and, um, you know, I mean, it's always tricky when with injuries because there's a certain amount of privacy that people expect. Um. You just try to get as much information as you can and try to say, okay, where are they going? You know, what's, what are they trying to do? And for, you know, pretty soon we figured out, okay, they're waiting for an ambulance to come and cart them off. And then Scott was the one trying to get the angle and the shot. And I mean, for people that feel like that's sort of an impersonal thing, uh, I know there's people who are like, oh, you're exploiting injury for clicks or whatever and i know there's people who feel that way but i mean this is this is our job we tell the story the stories of what happened in our community and and specifically you know at this baseball game and and that was uh, the the biggest probably element of that story that day that utah had to wait 40 minutes for an ambulance to come out for their injured teammate who's also their best player and kind of sit there in tension until he he gave that thumbs up sign as he was getting on the ambulance. And I mean, to me, we're not doing our job if we're not looking for ways to tell that story. And I would say Scott did the, probably the best job of, of our team um, that day to, to kind of figure out what was going on. I mean, I, fi- I found out more after it was over and, and while it was going on. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's, that's kind of what we do and, and we take it seriously. Um, and whether it's sort of tragedy or triumph, I mean, that's what we're trying to, to capture, the stories of our community and, and what happens. And, and as I was saying earlier, the context. I mean, what happened was Utah won a baseball game, but the context is these guys had to rally from watching their teammate get horrifically injured and, and win a baseball game. And that's the story. That's the real thing that people are going to want to know. What was the morale like in the stadium? Was it completely silent? What it was, was very quiet. Were people just confused? Like, okay, he why it's been forty minutes. I don't think we've ever seen anything like that in Utah. In terms of the length of a player being it was down, a really long time. Yeah. yeah. Do we know why it took the ambulance so long? To well, you can if so. Anytime you dislocate a shoulder or a hip, even knees and ankles to a certain extent. But that um, your veins can get caught underneath there, and then if you pop that in, it's going to sever your veins, and you're going to bleed out. And so, having the right person there to set that injury back is critical. And like they almost have to, like when I dislocated my shoulder, the doctor had to go in and lift out my artery, and then put my shoulder in, and it was the most painful thing in the world. Yeah. But and, what does that have to do with the ambulance? Like the ambulance should already be there. That that brought that was weird in my mind too because yeah, at football there's an ambulance, NBA there's an ambulance. Uh, every sport I've seen, outside of soccer, softball, and baseball, has an ambulance. Has an ambulance. I've never been to a game where there's not an ambulance. So yeah. That's why I'm like, it is okay, yeah. You you have to set it. You have to do that. The right person has to do this. But where the heck is the ambulance? Yeah. So this injury, how much? I don't, for lack of a better word. How big of a blow was this to the University of Utah, the Utes, and then for his oh, it's career? Oh, huge. I mean, he, um, 
you know, I don't know about his career. I think they're still trying to figure that out. I talked to Bill Kinneberg today about that. But, um, you know, I mean, he's their best player. Uh, when you look at sort of the major league potential, and Sasha was alluding to it earlier, um, I mean, this guy probably is the most. He's unless, legit. Unless a pitcher, you know, makes it, um, which which might also be possible. But, um, yeah, Deshaun is, is super fast, um, even among – so the way they grade baseball talent is um, basically like they you say you compare people to major league average, and so it's when you say they have plus speed, you're saying they have better than average speed. Deshaun definitely has plus speed, mm. which is faster than the average major leaguer. I mean that's a, that's a big deal, and the way he can hit, I mean I think he was hitting over 300 this year, um, is is pretty good. Um, I think he still has to add power, um, but yeah. When I mean, that's his gift. Running is is his gift. And he could have been probably a track star. He's good on the bases too. Yeah, real sharp around those corners. Yeah, he he can circle the bases in under fifteen seconds. Wow, which Bef- is really fast. Before his injury, would you say that uh, Utah had a successful season, and then where we are now? Oh, it was. I mean, the the game ended, or that the season ended that day. Yeah. So it didn't necessarily affect their season. Um, but before the injury, would you say that their season was a success and then after that he's injured now, looking back, is it really a success if it was because now he's injured? It, it costs them. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it just depends. It just depends on if he – I don't know if that really reflects on Utah's whole season, but it is obviously a, a thing that Utah really – I mean, Utah really needs him to come back, and he needs to come back, um, you know, for his own personal – development um you know i think he he kind of identified early that baseball was going to be sort of what was going to separate him and and uh you know i think everyone's pretty hopeful that he figures it out and and hopefully the hips heal and i was a little worried when they said fracture because i thought with the dislocated hip maybe they could pop back in and there's a couple months of rehab but the fracture is a little concerning um for sure so um, you know, I don't know. I think every, everyone I've talked to sounded hopeful. Um, uh, but, you know, we'll have to see. Before we get out of here tonight, uh, I do want to talk to you about basketball. Uh, how do you think the running Utes are going to fare out this year? Um, tough to say. Uh, I mean, I think, uh, you know, Larry, the, the pattern has been for the last couple of years that Larry Kuskoviak, um, outperformed what people think he's going to do. Um, and I know people were upset with the 20-12 and 12 year this year when going to the NIT and dropping out in the first round. But the, the reality is, I mean, it's a zero-sum game. And, you know, so, I mean, not everyone can go to the NCAAs. Um, and sometimes that happens. And, and you know, you're, you're trying to replace an All-American, which – a lot of programs don't have, and Utah had two in back-to-back years, and and it's tough. It's tough to do. Um, I was really bummed about Devin Daniels transferring to North Carolina State. I thought he was a phenomenal player. He yeah. didn't have a choice. He had yeah. to pretty much go. Yeah. Not pretty much. He had to. Well, I don't know the story on there, but Kyle Goon does. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they just they they weren't philosophically getting along. Yeah. They just and. And I think they felt like 
I feel like the coaching staff thought they needed to see more from from Devin in terms of sort of a willingness to change. Um, and you know, I, I don't know how specific I can but accurately you get. You can't here, get but those type of athletes and expect them not to play. I mean, if you watch Oregon play and the really good teams, all they do is attack the basket. And that's what Devin Daniels does, and that's what uh, the other point guard does. Yeah, I don't know if it was as schematic as it mm. was just cultural for the program. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, in terms of, like, habits and behavior, I, I think that's where it was. And I, I can't say with absolute certainty because, you know, I wasn't there at those practices or on the bus or I wasn't watching him all the time. Yeah. So I don't know what the interactions were like. But basically, by the end of the season – it, it seemed like they had come to a crossroads, and they said, you know, we need to see certain things from Devin. Even Devin was saying, I understand I have to change, and I guess they didn't see what they wanted to see. And, and they said, okay, well, start, start again. You know, do, do your thing. And he's, he's obviously going to another um, Power 5 program, and NC State is in a really competitive league. And, you know, I think he has the chance to have a really good career. As you were saying, he's really talented. Um, but it's sort of... Yeah, I, I think Utah saw it. I'll, I'll say I'll put it that way. I think Utah saw it as a attitude determines your altitude type situation. Yeah, it's his third school now, and he's twenty. Oh, it's it's his second college. Wasn't he an SMU kid? Oh no, that's Cedric. Cedric. Okay, My, I apologize. I apologize. Yeah. It looks like California is taking over Utah because we got <laughs> Justin Bibbins coming in, yeah. running point from Long Beach State. That's my guy. I love that guy. Oh, for real? Yeah. I didn't know you guys knew each other. Yeah. Um. Well, we're not, like, friends. I just... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. He seems he, like uh, a really nice kid. He is. He's a really nice kid. He comes from a great background, a great family. Um, I covered him when he played ball at Bishop Montgomery. Mm-hmm. Um. So I was covering him then, and I, I emailed his mom. I was like, oh, my God! Justin's coming to Utah. <laughs> I'm like, California's taking over. Like, uh, if he needs anything for his dorm, whatever, let's go shopping. <laughs> Is that, it's that same thing. It's like, the, I mean, those are where the kids who are playing year-round are. And there are Utah kids, and Utah hasn't gotten them lately. Um, they've, they've decided to go elsewhere. Um, but it, we're usually only talking about three or four kids in any given year in-state that are in Utah's orbit that are really good enough to play in the Pac-12. And California, we're talking hundreds, hundreds of kids who could play in the Pac-12. So it's a different stratosphere of of player. Should we be worried about him, though? Because he is short. He's short. (laughs) I don't know what to (laughs) say about that. I mean, mean, but he is explosive. He's good in the backcourt. He he is. He's fast. He can play good D. But, I mean, at the end of the day, he doesn't have the height. Yeah. Pac-12 I mean, always had a lot of short uh, point guards, though. Yeah. Brand, Brandon Taylor made it work sometimes, and sometimes it didn't work as much. And you know, Cal had a had a five foot eight, five foot nine guard last year who actually transferred, um, but he was pretty good. Um, Isaiah Thomas with Washington. Isaiah Thomas. That was a good squad. But you need to be special, special mm. to really make that work. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, I don't see Justin Bivens as a star at Utah, if that's your question. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that they feel pretty good about his competency. And, you know, when he committed, I looked at his stats in Pac-12 games, and you know, they're a little bit less, but not yeah. that much. And, you know, he can have – he can. I'm sure he's the kind of player who can have a have big game occasionally. 
against a Pac-12 level, but it's going to be all about matchup. Because if, if he's against like a player like Markel Fultz on a given night, yeah. well, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> all of us kind of fall short. It, it, it is what it is. I mean, what, what can you say? It, yeah. He's he's five foot eight or nine, and the coaching staff said we'll live with it. Yeah, he reminds me. Of, do you guys know who Casper Ware is? Mm-hmm. Who also played for Long Beach State? He was out here uh, two years ago. Uh, he played summer league. He was with the Spurs. Yes, yes. He reminds me of him. A uh, short guard, a uh, lot of heart, explosive. But Casper, where is he at now? He's playing ball overseas. Right. Exactly. Both of you yeah. seem high on Kyle Kuzma in the NBA, especially you, Brittany. I don't see Whoa, it. whoa, especially me. Where's that coming from? I see your tweets. Uh, tw- What do I say? Kyle Kuzma has a jazz. workout. Yeah, Kyle Kuzma to the Jazz. I just Let's said, that'd be cool. Yeah. Remember, I'm a Laker fan, so anyway. <laughs> you, think, you think there's Kuz room in... Kuz would be great. Oh, Kuz, oh man. Oh. See, this is coming him. On, coming he's the jazz. groupie. No, no, just I mean, in he's, he's just a great talker. Is, I mean, what do you want? I mean, he's, <laughs> he's really good at talking to the media. Is there is there a room for him in the NBA? Uh, sure, yeah. but he, I, I, I see what you're saying, Sasha, um, about your skepticism, and I think he needs skill development, and I think he needs to be able to defend. Is yeah. going to be the and number shoot one thing. the three. Yeah, um, shoot the three. Which he's, he's, he's shown on. improvement in that. Um, I think. You know, he'll say it himself, you know, he thinks he can be in the mold of, um, you know, a, a, any position player. Um, and I think that can be true of him offensively. I don't know if that's true of him defensively. And he's tiny, too, in terms of his strength. And Oh, he's not He's not that tiny. Um, he's skinny. And, and actually, he's skinny. Actually, he had um, 12 bench press reps at the combine which is pretty good for a guy with a seven foot wingspan so i've done 15 <laughs> of 225 yeah i do it all the time at vasa fitness is that true <laughs> no that's a damn lie but for a guy with a seven foot wingspan it comes it comes pro- progressively harder for you to you know push and, and kind of get a full extension the longer your arms are that's why you see at the nfl combine the guys with the most bench presses are the guys with the shortest wingspans, T-Rex arms. I was just but, about to say T-Rex. <laughs> but Kyle, um, actually, Sorry. who told me, you know, the first time he arrived at Utah, he couldn't do a push-up. Now to do 12 reps of 225, that's not bad. There's, there's NFL receivers who can't do that, you know. So, yeah. that, I mean, he's not a str- he's, he's maybe not the strongest player, but I think he's a guy who can mature. I think if he – if his improvement in the three-pointer is consistent. Um, you know, maybe he has a role. And I think the most important thing that I know the people who are close to Kyle talk about a lot, and, and the reason I thought he was going to declare, was, is he really is a basketball junkie. And a lot of people say that, but not a lot of people live that. And the way you can tell is, you know, we would go uh, the week that Utah was going to play UCLA which was a phenomena back in January, right? Mm. I mean, Lonzo Ball was lighting it up, and they had top 10 highlights on SportsCenter every night. They were a top 10 team. They'd beaten Kentucky. Like, they were a big phenomenon in college basketball. And you asked some other players on the team, what do you think of UCLA? Have you watched them? He's like, no. I don't really really watch uh, other teams unless we're getting ready to play them. And the difference between – 
those guys who were on Utah and were good players. And Kyle is Kyle will quote stats to you about, you know, who's averaging what on UCLA because he watches basketball because he likes basketball. He likes to play. He likes to do open gyms. He likes to watch NBA games. He likes to watch college games. He likes to keep track of what his friends are doing, Monte Morris or uh, the kid at Michigan State whose name is escaping me right now, but kids from Flint. He likes to follow all of that, and he does it like a fan. And and when you give that person the full-time job of playing basketball, are you telling me that that kid isn't going to grow? I mean, and I think that's – and and – you know that maybe I'm projecting a little bit, but that's that's definitely what Kyle thinks, and that's definitely what the people who helped to make that decision think. That Kyle is so invested in basketball that he's going to develop, and he's going to work harder than some of his peers, and he's going to surprise people. And he has some physical tools um, that he can work with. He has a good wingspan. He has good height. Um, you know, he, he's going to have to work on his good lateral agility. Um, yeah, and I think he got maybe a bum rap for um, the team underachieving in some people's eyes, even though he was statistically the best player. And, I mean, he didn't really have a lot of leadership around him to help. And, and Larry kind of laid that out at the end of the season. He's like, I feel bad that some people interpreted something I said as being critical of Kyle because I thought he was a real leader for our team. And I, I think people sort of naturally – when the team underachieves in their eyes, kind of point to the best player and it's like, well, he didn't do his job. Well, there might have been nights where Kyle was the only one doing his job. Yeah. And you can't win as a team like that in a league as competitive as the Pac-12. And and that's kind of, I, I think maybe there's somewhat underestimation of what Kyle can do. Will that make him a consistent, long-time NBA player? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I just don't know. But I think... He is a guy who genuinely loves the game of basketball. And you really, like, people don't understand. You really can't say that about even most college players. They, they don't live and breathe it. And, and, and Kyle does. Live and breathe basketball. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's the only thing. I, no, I'm just kidding. I paid attention to everything. Uh, don't look at me like that. <laughs> Your show, Britt. Oh, God. You're never coming back on, are you? No, I'm just kidding. You're lucky number six. I wish it, I wish Sasha had done the drop and dimes the sound effect like right at the end of that. that Don't would add be it. A, yeah. Don't Long montage. That. Don't add that. Long monologue. Whatever, man. Kyle, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you. Um, where can people find you at on social media? I'm just at Kyle Goon, just my name. And uh, I have a Facebook page, also Kyle Goon, so... Check it out. Check it out. Hashtag goon. Goon life. <laughs> that That's what we're going to start. <laughs> you can try. goon life. <laughs> but I don't have enough followers. Um, find me on Twitter at bjohnsonabc 4 Sasha, where are you at? Bloom underscore Sasha on Instagram. I'm getting rid of my Twitter account. So No, you're not. Probably yes. a healthy thing to do. Yes, I am. I'm too tempted to just get in trouble. So Whatever. We out. We out this. Goon life. Luke Brock was the symbol of great base stealing. But today, I'm the greatest of all time. Thank you.
of your time. Congratulations.